you have your Bibles, and if you wish to follow along, we're considering Peter's epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 7. We are continuing um, the idea of what Peter is teaching here on submission. Uh, we understand that there's a trilogy of submissions that he speaks to here, however, those submissions are not to be taken as exhaustive. For example, he doesn't mention where Paul mentions in Ephesians, he doesn't mention the necessity of children to submit or obey their parents. Um, and so he's just giving some examples of where submission is appropriate. So we read in 1 Peter 3, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be hidden, the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them, referring to wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not, might not be hindered. And now, most holy and benevolent God, we ask for thy spirit, the spirit of Christ, to wash our minds in the word, grant us grace to understand this text, keep us, Father, from errors that can be easily slipped into, grant us grace, Father, to preach the whole counsel of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I've studied and even, yes, I'd say struggled with this text the last few weeks, because it's not just been the last two weeks, but it's been weeks previous to that as Sam has been teaching this in Sunday school. Um, I have to say that I understand, don't agree with, but understand how uh, the Anabaptist disposition towards pacifism uh, arose within the church. Um, Peter's banging away on submission here uh, is really quite totalistic, and he goes into it uh, even again later in chapter 3, where in verses 17 forward he talks about suffering for, for wrong. And so it's easy to understand how the doctrine of pacifism could have rose within the church. There's so much emphasis here on submission. Now, submission isn't directly linked to pacifism, but it's a short journey there too. However, as I said, I am not a pacifist, and I agree with pacifism, and if you look at the quotes in the back of the bulletin this morning, you'll see that the church has likewise never been pacifistic, completely pacifistic, without knowing that there are seasons where holy rebellion must be entered into. Having said that, I'll have to say I'll need one more week following this week to finish on the idea of submission. So I ask you again not to come to a 
complete verdict on what is said until all three sermons are completed. Week three will especially be considering when submission becomes sin. Though we hint at that and touch on that today, also in week three we'll be looking more at that last verse there, verse eight, where it talks about the husband's relation to their wives. Uh, We come back to this Peter passage now as Peter, under the inspiration of the third person of the Godhead, teaches on submission. We have admitted that, and again already, that this is a difficult passage. And to be honest, the more I read, the more difficult it gets because there hasn't actually been a consensus through church history on where that red line is finally drawn where submission is to be no more. It's clear that the red line is there, but as you read and read and read, you find that uh, where it's drawn is, is a hard place to find in terms of consensus. There just isn't consensus. Um, there's no consensus out there then on how far, how far submission goes and when the proper time is to no longer submit to those who are egregiously operating outside their own boundaries of authority. Clearly the general disposition that a Christian is to have without fail to proper and lawful authority is submission. We're always to submit, submit to our superiors when those superiors are operating consistent with God's authority. But that's kind of a no-duh statement, right? If we have a superior, if a wife has a husband, if as citizens we have a magistrate, um, if as employees we have employers that are always operating within the context of biblical law, then it's, it, 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 it's not saying anything really that our responsibility is to submit. For example, we take the, the passage this week, a Christian wife is always to be submitting to a husband who is directing her as consistent with God's law word. If such a woman delights in obeying God, she will obviously delight in doing what? Obeying her husband, her Christian husband. The same is true in relation to Christian citizenship, citizens or subjects as obeying Christian magistrates and Christian slaves as obeying Christian masters. In any of these inferior superior relations, what person who's in the inferior position would not want to obey the person in the superior position? If the person in the superior position are using their authority as consistent with God's authority. As we said, that much is a no-brainer. However, it gets complicated because Peter doesn't seem to be talking about just that kind of situation when he calls for submission. Peter, in at least two of the three examples, is writing to Christians who are being required to submit to people who are non-Christians. We know this from the description of how slaves are submit to even cruel masters. Well, a master would not be cruel if he was submitting to God's authority. And we know this from how wives are to submit to their husbands, who in the text are clearly considered not Christian. As Paul tell, Paul, as Peter tells the wives to submit in this passage, in passage 3, the context is, and we'll talk more about this anon, the context is, is that they are married to Christians, or to men who are not Christians. Uh, what seems to have been the context is that these wives have converted, and, and having converted, they now live in a home where they are the Christian wife, and they have a, a, a non-Christian husband. And we have to put ourselves back in a first century mindset, and again, I'll go more into this later, we have to go back to a first century mindset where the wife always had, without fail, the religion 
Of who? Of the husband, right? And if a wife took up a different religion from the husband, that automatically was seen as uh, perhaps even as much as treasonous. And so this is the context in which Paul is writing. He's not writing to, to Christian wives who have Christian husbands. He's writing to Christian wives who by God's grace have been converted and now find themselves in the situation of living with a husband who is not particularly Christian. And so we have to deal with that context in terms of the call to submission. I hope that we do that as we move through here. So in neither of these two examples, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, could we expect that the submission that Peter is calling for would be required as under the superiors who are directing them without any interest in doing so as in the Lord. In other words, the wives that Peter is talking to are not getting direction from husbands who are directing them as in the Lord. Most of the ladies sitting here today are submitting to their covenant head, but their covenant head, again, is Christian. Now, we do live in somewhat of a situation where this, there is equivalency. For example, as subjects, citizens, whichever phrase you would prefer, to magistrates, we still do submit in areas where we're not being instructed or guiding as in the Lord. This is important to understand. So just as wives are told to submit to their unchristian husbands, so we are told to submit as we looked earlier in the passage of citizens and magistrates, and we are doing that in our context every time we pay our taxes. We are submitting at that point to a magistrate who is not directing us in the Lord. And we know that because we know, at least if we are based, we know that because we understand what our taxes are being used for. And to be perfectly honest, if we were not in this submissive role, we would not be writing checks to the federal or the state government. But we're told to submit, and we operate in that context. Uh, we see that kind of attitude, this idea of uh, submitting to ungodly authority. We see it in our history. Now, again, understand what I'm saying here. There are times when you do submit to ungodly authority is the point that's being made. All right? Peter is making that point with wives and husbands. He's made that point with slaves and masters. And I'm saying we've seen that throughout history. Uh, we, we think of our own American independence but our Christian forefathers only entered into that after they had, for a long time, done what? Submitted to, to King George. King George didn't give an edict, one edict, and then they woke up the next morning and said, we're out of here. There was a long train, as the Declaration of Independence says, there was a long train on the part of George of abuses and usurpations. And over that course of time, what did the colonialists do? They submitted. They, 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 they made protest. Um, they appealed to the king. They appealed to the law. They used their own uh, burgesses and houses. But in the end, until a certain event, Lexington and Concord, they kept on doing what? 
submitting. And they did that for, for, for years. And so what I'm trying to communicate here is that submission is, is the general disposition that we're to have, and it's only when something becomes outrageous that that red line is finally drawn and we say, I'm sorry, I must obey God rather than men. And that applies to citizens in speaking to magistrates, and it applies in wives in speaking to husbands. And we'll get more into detail of that next week. Our forefathers put it in their own document about this, what I'm trying to get at. They said, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. We might say the same thing. Marriages indeed will dictate that marriages long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. You see, you see what I'm doing here? And accordingly, again, this is the Declaration of Independence, accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it's their right, no, it's their duty, to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patience, patient sufferance of these colonies. Again, they com they're communicating, for a long time we've submitted, but enough is enough. And I would submit that when we're talking about wives and husbands, it's the same principle. There is this submission that continues, that continues, that continues. But there does come a point when there's a red line that has to be drawn and what is said, no, no mas, no further, no more. So we see that in our Christian fathers before us, led by the black-robed regiment, after spending a great deal of time, indeed years and decades, of submitting, finally decided that a line had been crossed, and now is the time for working to the end of bringing an unrighteous power to heal. But we're ahead of ourselves somewhat here, although I've tried to make the connections. Let us return to the issue of submitting as it relates to wives and husbands. As we said, First Peter 3 opens with the third call for submission, the trilogy here, wives likewise be submissive to your husband. Of course, you'll understand that this is not somehow unique to Peter. Paul says much the same thing in both Colossians and Ephesians, this idea of wives being submissive to your husband. As I noted last week, this passage and those other passages uh, demonstrate that a Christian social order, by definition, is patriarchal. Men are the heads of the home. Men are the heads in the broader culture. That seems to be, that doesn't seem to be, that is the resonance that we find throughout scriptures. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands. The word likewise here refers back to the general principle of submission that began in chapter 2, verse 13. It's important to note that because it's not, the word likewise here is not intended to equate the wife's submission to the husband with that of a slave to a master. The word likewise recurs again in verse 7, establishing that just as the wife submits to the husband, so also the husband must give understanding and honor to the wife. The relationship of husband and wives then recognizes they are bound up together as the recipients together of the grace of life. 
This necessity for wives to submit to their husbands was part of the creation order. You know that. This is another no-brainer. And the lack of it is part of the reason for man's fall. And in God's speech to the woman right after the fall, God made it clear that this impulse to not want to submit to the husband would, would always be a, the temptation of the woman. To desire would be for her husband, is how the text says. And the desire for her husband doesn't mean that she just wants her husband. She loves him and she wants him. What it probably is communicating there is she desires his what? His position. Right? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so God makes it clear at that point that this idea of the push-me-pull-you, the lack of submission that can come in marriage, is something that is a consequence of the fall, and indeed is before the fall. And so wives need to be aware of that, that desire for their husband's position, just as husbands need to be, and I'm not going to get into this, but it's the, it's the flip side of the coin, just as husbands need to be aware that they are not allowed to abdicate their responsibility and their position to be godly rulers. Now, in the context of, of what we just said regarding Eve's and her daughter's temptation to always want to seize the husband's position to not submit, we add to that the rise of feminism that we've seen since the 19th century. Otherwise, in other words, we live in a culture that's pushing women to what? Not submit. That's what feminism does. And already now I've made all kinds of people, hypothetical people, mad at that statement. But there was a time when Christian women did not recoil at this idea of the necessity to submit. I've mentioned this woman before. You can find her writings online. I strongly recommend them. They were a real eye-popper for me when I read them. It's a rather longish document, but you can polish it off in a week. But here's what Susan Fenimore Cooper did, said... She was the daughter of the famous American author James Fenimore Cooper. She wrote at the tail end of the 1800s, and she was pushing against feminism when she wrote this long treatise, of which I'm quoting but just a part. She said, no system, and I'm quoting her now, no system of philosophy has ever yet worked out in behalf of woman the practical results for good which Christianity has conferred upon her. Christianity has raised woman from slavery and made her the thoughtful companion of man. Finds her the mere toy or the victim of his passions, and it places her by his side, his truest friend, his most faithful counselor, his helpmeet in every worthy and honorable task. It protects her far more effectually than any other system. It cultivates, strengthens, elevates, purifies all of her highest endowments, and holds out to her aspirations the most sublime for that future state of existence, where precious rewards are promised to every faithful discharge of duty, even, even the most humble. But while conferring on her these priceless blessings, it also enjoins the submission of the wife to the husband and allots a subordinate position to the whole sex while here on earth. No woman calling herself a Christian, acknowledging her duties as such, can therefore consistently deny the obligation 
of a limited subordination laid upon her by her Lord and his church. So there, there was a time when the women, the daughters of Sarah, the women of the church understood this. And I love quoting Fenimore Cooper to feminists because it, it makes them tear their hair out. Because this is one of a whole series of quotes that you can find in her writings. But she understands both the privilege of women and the position of women. That they are indeed, as Peter says here, they are to submit. However, this mindset that we find in Susan Fenimore Cooper is seldom seen anymore. But regardless of the prevailing cultural winds, the text calls for wives to submit to even their non-Christian husbands. Text calls for wives to submit, even to their non-Christian husbands. Again, remembering everything I've already previously said, up to a point. Just as we have the responsibility as citizens to submit to our ungodly magistrates, up to a point. Now, the sticky wicket comes in where where that point is, right? That, That drives all kinds of debate. We'll get more into that probably next week. But if we can at least agree that there is a red line that can't be crossed, then we've established the principle that there are exceptions for submission. Agreed? So, for example, if a husband tells his wife, look, honey, um, we're kind of short on on money this month to meet the bills. Could you go down to the house of ill repute and earn some money? You know, obviously that's a what? That's a, as I've been saying, it's a, red line? And the answer is not, yes, honey, I'll submit. All right? The answer is, at that point, godly rebellion. So I've taken an extreme example, and I've set it out there. Now the question is about all the other examples that can come up, can possibly be adduced. Again, that'll probably be more next week. So remember, as we get into this, we will talk about the exceptions, but we're going to talk about Submission, and that can be no longer an option for wives. And we need to let the general principle soak in. I'm prone to want to, want to know all the exceptions, for example, in the category of citizens and magistrates. Tell me the examples, because I'm ready to go. But before we get to the exceptions, we ought to, we ought to just marinate in the idea that submission is supposed to be characteristic of the Christian, and in our text this morning, of the Christian wife. And ladies, if, if you were to have problems with what's been said here, I would encourage you to read Susan Fenimore Cooper. She's a delight in what she has to say in her whole text. When our sovereign God commanded that wives are to submit to their husbands, at that point God confirmed a law order for marriage that had already been in place for a millennium among God's people. So when Peter says here, wives submit to your husbands, he's not saying, nobody, no wife, no woman is going, wow, where did that come from? That had been established since creation. In God's revealed family order, both the husband and wife operate ultimately as under God's absolute authority. And so husbands have no authority to be tyrants or those who abdicate their authority. And wives have no authority to seize their husband's authority. 
nor do they have any authority to live as doormats when their lives may well be in danger. And all of this is, is consistent with what Calvin wrote on the subject of godly submission to superiors in general as by sub inferiors. This is from his Institute to the Christian Religion. and He's talking here about parents and children, but you can translate it quickly in your mind to wives and husbands. Calvin writes, It ought to be observed, by the way, that we are ordered to obey parents only... That's right. Only in the Lord. This is clear from the principle already laid down. For the place which they occupy is one to which the Lord has exalted them by communicating to them a portion of His honor. The same is true for husbands, right? They've been communicated a portion of God's honor. Therefore, the submission yielded to them, Calvin's talking about parents, but we can still talk about husbands, should be a step to our ascent to the supreme parent, and hence, if they, and hence, if they instigate us to transgress the law, they deserve not to be regarded as parents, and hence, if they, but, but rather as strangers attempting to seduce us from our obedience to our true father. The same hold, now listen, the same holds, Calvin says, in the case of rulers, masters, and superiors of every description. For it were unbecoming and absurd that the honor of God should be impaired by their exaltation, an exaltation which being derived from him ought to lead us to him. So what Calvin is saying is that superiors, and we've already noted this, they have the responsibility in their leading us, whether they're parents, whether they're husbands, whether they're pastors, whether they're magistrates, their responsibility in their superior position is to lead God's flock to Christ. And if they're not doing that, then this is when we start talking about red line, red line, red line, where's the red line? Let me just say as a way of a kind of a, an addendum here, we need to be praying for people that are living in situations where their superiors are wicked. There, there must be nothing more difficult than to live in a marriage in a situation where the husband is a tyrant. In the same way as we know all of us in this culture, there can be little few things worse than having to live under magistrates that are Christ-haters. And so the principle would apply down the line. And so we should be in prayer for these people, earnestly asking God for them to give them wisdom, to give them patience. Again, undumbrating Calvin to emphasize, if they instigate us to transgress the law, they being the superiors, they deserve not to be regarded as superiors, but as strangers attempting to seduce us from obedience to our true Father. The same holds in the case of rulers, masters, superiors, and every other description. Now Calvin is, has, has opened the door to make it clear that there's going to be exceptions to this idea of absolute submission. And we'll talk more about that next week. The exceptions, we'll look more at the text for that. But again, we're trying to marinate in the idea of submission. Here we find from Calvin where submission ends and righteous disobedience arises. When our superiors instigate us to transgress the law, they deserve not to be regarded as our superiors, and if they're not regarded as superiors, then they're no longer owed what? Submission. So that's easy for me to say. It's easy to stand behind the pulpit and say, it's easy to say there comes a point when superiors are no longer owed submission. 
easy to say that there's a red line that wives no longer have to be in submission when that's crossed. But it wasn't easy for, again, for these women in the first century. And here I talk more about them and give you the context. In every sphere of ancient civilization, women had no rights at all. None. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was owned by her husband in exactly the same way as he owned his sheep and his goats. On no account could she leave him, although he could dismiss her at any moment. And for a wife to change her religion while her husband did not, and that's what's being talked about here in Peter, that was unthinkable. In Greek civilization, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and be obedient to her husband. It was a sign of a good woman that she must see as little, hear as little, and ask as little as possible. She had no kind of independent existence and no kind of mind of her own, and her husband could divorce her almost at caprice as long as, she returned, as, long as he returned her dowry. That's Greek law. I mentioned Jewish law. Now Roman law. A woman had no rights. In law, she remained forever a child. She was under the, her father. She was under the patria potestas, that is the father's power, which gave the father the right even of life and death over her. And when she married, she passed equally into the power of her husband. She was entirely subject to her husband and completely at his mercy. You know what changed all that? That's right, Christianity. That's why Fenimore Cooper could write the way she wrote. The Roman Cato, remember Cato? A hero, if you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without without impunity. I'm sorry, with impunity and without a trial. Roman matrons were prohibited from drinking wine, and Ignatius beat his wife to death when he found her doing so. Solipsius Gallus dismissed his wife because she once appeared in the streets without a veil. Anticitus Vitus divorced his wife because he saw her secretly speaking to a freed woman in public. Publius Semperanius Sovis divorced his wife because she once went into the public games. So the whole attitude of ancient civilization, the attitude that is current to whom Peter is writing, was that no woman could dare take any decision for herself. What then must have been the problems of the wife who became a Christian while her husband remained faithful to the ancestral gods may indeed be the situation that Peter is writing into in this text. And in that context, he tells the wives to submit. So it's almost impossible for us to realize what life must have been like for the wife who was brave enough to become a Christian. That's what makes this text difficult, right? Makes it more difficult because we no longer, right? We no longer live in that world. And we do understand that Inasmuch as as women are created in the image of God and their fellow partakers of the grace of life, as Peter says, we do understand as Christians that women have been been lifted so they're no longer things. And they do have status. Yet what's remarkable, as I've said, that that, that Peter is writing into this first century context and the emphasis is still, despite the horrors of it all, still submit. It's in this context and that Peter says to those first century wives that they should seek to live in a certain manner before husbands who do not obey the word 
with hopes that such a disposition would win their husbands to the faith. In other words, Peter's telling them, you're in a tough spot. You're a Christian, your husbands are not. How is it that you can be a witness to them? Well, you certainly can't be all Joe apologetic, right? You can't enter into polemics with your husband because what's going to happen? Not good things, right? So you have to communicate in another way. And Peter tells them, he gives some descriptions of what submissiveness would look like that God might use in order to convert the pagan husbands. He says, first of all, here in this text, he tells them that your chaste, he talks about the husbands observing their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So the first idea here is chaste, the Greek word is hagnos. It refers primarily to that which is inwardly pure. This purity also affects a person's conduct. Here it indicates the irreproachable conduct of the wife. And obviously, of course, if there's an inward purity, that's going to demonstrate itself how? Outward, right? You can't have something be inwardly true that doesn't show itself outwardly. And so he calls for them to, to need and, 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 to, and to work on an, this idea of purity or chasteness. He says to be there to be accompanied by fear. It literally means respectful, phobos. But in the context here, it means the honoring or reverencing of the unbelieving husband. Her respectfulness or her reverence or her honor for her husband reflects her attitude towards him, and that parallels her attitude towards God. He goes on to say here, he says, not merely outward adornment alone, and he mentions the plating of hair, um, the wearing of gold, the fine apparel. Now, it says not merely outward adornment. He's not saying that women should go around in sackcloth and ashes. He's merely saying that the emphasis should not be on the outward, but should be on the inward. He's not forbidding women doing things with their hair. He's not forbidding jewelry. He's not forbidding apparel. He's just saying don't major on the minors. Develop your character. Have that inward chasteness. Here you could preach a sermon, I suspect, on, on modesty. Because that seems to be what's being called for here. He also says what is to be adorned, adorned instead is the hidden person of the heart. That brings us back to the idea of being chaste. That is, a gentle and quiet spirit counted as precious before God. That's verse 4. Incorruptible beauty. The incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Ladies, wives, you want to be beautiful? Well, the text says here the way that you're beautiful is developing the gentle and quiet spirit which is connected to the idea of being chaste. Men? Single men, are there any here? There's Josh. You're looking, you're, you're looking for you're looking for women who have this chaste and quiet and gentle spirit. And Lee's only 10, but someday he'll be looking for that. So fathers, this is a, a, a direction that you need to be moving your sons in when they see them bringing home Marsha or June or 
Karen. I just pulled the names out of my hat. You need to be looking to help your son see if that is indeed in the woman that he's bringing home. This gentle and quiet spirit that is characterized as being incorruptible beauty is counted as precious in the sight of God. It seems the idea here is that the wife's outward presentation should be an expression of what's in her heart. Clearly, Peter is talking about a woman's character. It's a godly character that Peter is holding out as an attribute of submissiveness. Spurgeon offers here, the great Baptist minister, I'm quoting here, No taste can ever conceive anything so lovely as a holy character. No expensive materials and no ingenious fashioning of them can ever produce such beauty as a meek and quiet spirit. He says to his congregation, You must have known godly matrons, venerable Christian women, whose gentle piety has blessed the whole household of which they formed a part. They attained supreme authority over all simply by yielding. They gained a, a queenly position in the house. They gained a queenly position in the house by gentleness and quietness. Nobody dared offend them, not because they would have been in a passion, but because they themselves were so inoffensive, so kind, so gentle. We live in a different world. Am I wrong? I'm I'm not talking about the ladies here. I'm just talking about if you look at the macro-American culture, we live in a different world. Honestly, I, 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 I pray for our young men because finding these kind of Christian women in the same way thing goes in the other direction, it's not an easy thing. We can't, buy, can't pass by here without noting that Peter is giving us a description here of what godly womanhood should look like. There should be something of this in all of God's womenfolk. Once upon a time, within the last 40 or 50 years, maybe even longer now, there was this idea, probably, probably is longer, there was this idea by the Soviets that they were going to create a new what? A new Soviet man. In other words, what they were doing in their crafting of their citizen was going to create something that was unique and different so that when you met somebody who was a Soviet, you could say, aha, yeah, I've met you before. You're characteristic of the new Soviet man. Are you with me on that? What Peter is saying here is that this is the Christian woman in the same sense. This is what the Christian woman should look like. There should be something of this in all of God's women folk. Now, of course, Christian women come with a panoply of different personalities and character traits. But in all those different personalities and character traits, something of that which is Peter is describing here should be found in all Christian women. And not because I say it, but because that's what the text is telling us. Now again, the idea here isn't to factory produce women that all look the same way. Understand what I've said, that God's women folk come in all personalities and character traits. But what I'm saying is that this should be a part of each one of those. At least to some degree. 
And now we're rounding off with the last phrase that's used here. In verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You don't need to call him Lord. You might call him honey. You might call him sweetheart. Whatever the term of endearment or affection is. I, I, would think, I would find it weird if all of a sudden I found all the women here calling their husbands Lord every day. You can do it, but I, I'd still find it weird. And so the text seems to just, this, it's communicating this idea of respect and reverence. And then he says, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror, that last phrase, without, if you're not afraid with any terror, that one was a real head-scratcher. Um, what seems to be communicated, being communicated there is that you enter into this submissiveness, this kind of behavior, and you're not afraid of the potential consequences that might yet well come. So you don't have any fear or, or, or any terror. The Lutheran commentary, Lenski, explains it this way. This way. Uh, Without being frightened by any terror is not a condition of, for becoming a true daughter of Sarah. In addition to doing what is right or what is good in the text, it's rather the consequence of adopting the behavior that Peter advocated. If a Christian wife was suffering for her faith because of her conduct, she could gain, gain great confidence by doing what Peter counseled and what Sarah practiced. She could understand that any suffering that came her way was not a result of her sinful behavior, but in spite of her godly behavior. The sense is that these Christian women are to let nothing terrify, nothing terrifying or the potentiality of something terrifying frighten them from their course. For example, pagan women may disdain and insult them because they have adopted a nobler wifehood, yet they remain unafraid. Pagan husbands may resent their Christianity. This too does not frighten them. So the idea here is that they will all they will embrace this course of submissiveness as it's described here by Peter without being afraid of the terror of what might happen if they follow this good course. And so, what might we say of that by way of application? Well, as the family life continues to be unraveled and disheveled, godly women folk can contribute to the upbuilding by being these kind of women. Now again, perfection is never, is never even in the ballpark. It's the matter of the direction you're moving in. And husbands in the same way, as we'll look at more next week, uh, to likewise dwell with their wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife. You know, if, if, we follow, if we follow these prescriptions, our family life, our family orders will be increasingly beautiful so that people's whose family lives are broken and bruised and battered and boy howdy they are multitude those kind of people if we build these kind of family orders they'll be evangelistic and they'll look at us they'll look at our families and they'll say i want that and so our family orders can be what evangelistic, can herald Christ. We can then turn to those people and say, the only reason it's this way is because of Christ who bought me by his own blood and saved me and rescued me. And so we can give them the gospel. And so this kind of thing turns quickly on the opportunity to proclaim Christ. The second thing we say by way of application, obviously scripture is teaching here that there are Christian precepts and prescripts that need to be spoken on and preached on when it comes to social order. Why do I mention that? Because radical two kingdom says, shut up about social order. That should not be coming from the pulpit. They have to stay in their own lane. They should keep quiet. No, 
Peter tells me that I can speak to social order by speaking to family order by talking about these things. I can say from the pulpit, feminism is Ichabod. Feminism is Christ-hating. Do not be a feminist. Instead of reading Betty Friedan, read Susan Fenimore Cooper. And the third piece of application I've already touched on is that husbands and wives together need to be looking out for their children, that they're looking for husbands who will, for their daughters who will be the kind that verse 8 talks about, more about that next week, but also that they find sons who are not going to be tyrants over their daughters. I guess I should, should add here, Husbands, you want to make your father-in-law light his fire? You want to make him rage? Do what? Mistreat his daughter. Okay? Again, more about that next week when we look at verse 8, and then more about those red lines that we talked about in terms of when the time comes. We're not going to answer that absolutely because that's going to be somewhat subjective, but we will talk about um, the idea of when holy rebellion is the course, not only for wives and husbands, but also for uh, citizens and magistrates. All right, I've been at this a while. I always find myself saying, yeah, but I should have said that. But we're at the end, so let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And now, God of all grace and mercy, we pray that you would heal heal all of us, because all of us have, have bought into a certain degree uh, the narrative of cultural Marxism that so shapes the family, shapes the husbands, shapes the wives, shapes the children. We pray that our family orders will be biblical, and we pray, Father, that they be genuine and not contrived, like we're playing some kind of make-believe or masquerade game. We pray, Father, that this, all of this would come up within us organically, and not, uh, be not a matter of putting on airs. Heal our families, we beg of thee, Father. And use our families, Father, to point people to Christ. This is the need of the hour, for people to bow to Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.